first thing I wanted to put the reminder up there for you uh, that I haven't put up yet, but is the solar observing time, which has been 1.15 all semester. Starting on Sunday will be 12.15 as we switch the clocks back an hour, so that'll switch if switches our clocks back, but it doesn't change what the sun is doing, so we have to go back an hour to keep the sun in the same relative position in the sky. So if you make an observation today, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, tomorrow if it clears up, perhaps you still want to do 115. After that, starting on Sunday, for the rest of the semester, it'll be 12.15. So plug in plus or minus half an hour or so, as close as you can get to that time. Um, other than that, we also have coming up on Monday an exam and a quiz. So there's a quiz that is due. It's available now on chapters 11 and 12. And then exam 3 covering uh, chapters 10 through 12 will be on Monday as well here in class. Same style and format as the previous two exams. And then homework 6, which I gave out uh, earlier, is due on the 10th of November, uh, a week from Monday. And then the, the third of the four iTunes quizzes will be available starting that day as well, starting on the 10th, available for the week. And we'll cover the images from the end of the last, last quiz, which would be the 4th of October, through the end of next week, through a week from today, November 7th. So it'll stop there and it'll be available starting on Monday. So I'll have that, have that up there. The other thing I put up since I've gotten the final exam schedule, uh, finally was able to check that. Our final exam is scheduled for Wednesday, December 10th from 9 till 11. And it will be here in the classroom, same. Uh, I'll talk to you a little bit more about it. It's uh, essentially a double exam. It's twice, twice, twice the size of a regular exam. Half of it is previous material, previous exam material. The other half is the new material that will come from after exam four. But I'll talk to you a little bit more about that as we get a little bit closer, although we're only a little over a month away from that. So. It's getting here quick. Any questions on anything up here? All right, our Halloween picture of the day is the Milky Way over Devil's Tower. So Devil's Tower out in Wyoming there, out in the distance, as photographed here. And then uh, as the image was taken to show the Milky Way stretching across the sky. So our galaxy, uh, we'll be talking about that not next week, but the following week. We'll finish up on the rest of stars this next, this next week after the exam. And then we'll actually start talking about our galaxy in a little bit more detail. But this is our galaxy as we see it from within. We're sitting inside the galaxy looking outward so we don't see it as a nice big pretty spiral galaxy, which it is. We kind of get a distorted view of it as we see from inside. Um, a couple of things here. Well, one is the, that they actually happened to time it by luck to get a meteor coming through. Can't predict that. No way to predict when a meteor is going to come through the frame. So if you happen to have your camera open long enough, if you're at the time of a meteor shower, you might have a better chance of being able to see it. Otherwise, it's just going to be random luck that you might get this. And the same astronomer could go out and take this same image 10 more times and may never get anything. So it's all random on that. Uh, to making it a Halloween image isn't just the Devil's Tower, but it's actually noting a lot of the different images, uh, nebulae that are present in the Milky Way that have uh, Halloween or spooky names. You can't see them all there, but see how well this comes out. They've got them highlighted in black. That's not too bad. But a couple of different ones that are noted that have Halloween names. There is the, 
little ghost nebula, the red spider, cat's paw, flaming skull, glowing eye, shooting, well there's the shooting star I already mentioned, the witch's broom, the wizard, the ghost of Cepheus, what else is up there, the cat's eye, cat's eye nebula up at the top. So all sorts of, of astronomical nebulae that have been named with you know, spooky sounding names. Uh, no, the little witch is not a real, <laughs> if you notice the little witch flying over Devil's Tower, no, that's not a real, not a, not, not a dark nebula there blocking out the light from behind it. That's just actually put in there with the other, other names there to kind of make it kind of a Halloween, uh, Halloween feel, feel to it there. But there are some, there is a witch's broom nebula that's supposed to look a little bit like the broom, a witch's broom, and some of the other ones are um, interesting like that too. Yesterday's was actually Halloween themed too, so let me go back one while we're... Not too bad. That actually is, looked like a little screeching creature or something, I don't know, maybe, maybe a little bit, maybe, yeah. A specter, it's, it's part of a supernova remnant. I thought it was also appropriate since we've been talking about supernovae. And that's, you know, that's part of that remnant that's left over. But you, know, you can see it's almost maybe like some kind of screeching creature, uh, bat, whatever, coming there. So that one was Halloween themed as well. So I thought I'd go back and go ahead and show that as, as well. Any questions on either, either one of them? All right, we're ready to go back and we're almost done with chapter 12, which is for the exam. So let's go ahead and finish up chapter 12. And I said I was going to go back to this here. Uh, we looked at these, I showed these last time. There were three of these different um, sets of clusters that we looked at. This is a very, very young cluster. Uh, it's called H and Chi Persei in the constellation of Perseus. Extremely young cluster, you know, only about 10 million years old, so old enough that some of the very most massive stars have evolved off the main sequence and become red giants, but not many of them. Most of them are still here on the main sequence, and lots of these lower mass stars haven't yet made it. They're still working their way down here. If we come back in another million years, we'll probably see the main sequence would be running down a little bit lower. And we'd actually see a lot more of those actually working their way towards. So they're still working their way to the main sequence while some of the other ones have left. And what we're looking for in all of these clusters is this turnoff point, the point where the stars are just turning off, just leaving the main sequence. They all form at essentially the same time. And that means that where this turnoff point tells us the age of the cluster. How old is a star at that point? How long does a star live at that point? How long does it spend on the main sequence? That tells us how old the cluster is. So for example, if you get to an older cluster where the sun is just, stars like the sun are just leaving, then the cluster is about 10 billion years old because that's the estimated lifespan of the sun. Here, these, this cluster, the stars that are just leaving are only a few million years old. So it's an extremely young, extremely young star cluster with lots of hot stars, so even, uh, even a younger cluster than the one we looked at when we did the lab a uh, couple of weeks ago. Now if we look at a, a little bit older cluster, the Hyades, uh, over in the constellation of Taurus, uh, this is also relatively young but significantly older. You see that all those stars that were up here, that would have been up here, are gone. It's not that they're not there or never formed. They were there at some point. If you could go back 590 million years, 
then that this HR diagram probably would have had would have had all these stars up here and would have looked a lot like the one I showed you for the previous cluster. It's just that in that 590 million years between the time this was 10 million years old and now all of these stars have exhausted their fuel, gone through their lives, become red giants. Uh, many of some have exploded as supernovae depending on their mass. Some have become white dwarfs, which we're starting to see. And all that's telling us is that those have begun to those have all left. So any star with a lifespan of 600 million years or less is now gone. So the main sequence gets cut off. The rest of the stars have now all reached it. After 600 million years, all those stars have had time to become main sequence stars. So a little bit older cluster here. Not incredibly old, but a little bit older. And if we look at the oldest one, one we finished up with last time, this is a globular cluster. We looked at one of those last time. This is about 10 to 12 billion years old. Here is one where a star like the Sun could already be going through the end stages of its life. Instead of being on the main sequence, a star like the Sun will already be going through the subgiant and up into the giant branch, depending on exactly you know, how old that cluster is. And when you look at this, you actually get to see the whole evolution of a star like the Sun. You can really see that pattern that it's going to take. You can almost follow where it's going to go up to the red giant, goes over to the horizontal branch, goes back up again, comes around, and becomes a white a white dwarf. One other thing that's noted there that I haven't mentioned is what they call the blue stragglers. So these are stars that look like they're on the main sequence, pretty close to the main sequence, but they shouldn't be there anymore. They're too blue, right? They're too hot that they should not be. They should have gone through their lives already. Astronomers believe that these are stars that actually form through mergers. So it was two smaller stars you know, two stars like the Sun, each of one solar mass that were in a close orbit and actually merged together. And all of a sudden, instead of being a one solar mass star, they become a two solar mass star. So they're still present long after if that star had formed at the very beginning when the cluster did, it would have been gone. If they form a lot later, we can still see those stars. They haven't had time to go through their combined fuel yet. So we think that some of those form through actually mergers of stars. We'll begin to see that actually in the next chapter too when we talk about some of the remnants. We'll talk about other types of stars merging and colliding. So that's again, I went through most of that last time. I just wanted to kind of refresh and go through it a little bit more, a little bit once more. The last thing I wanted to look at here was just kind of going through the cycle. The star formation and cycle of it. It all continues. It keeps going on and on. It's not that star formation starts and it's done. In most things, like our galaxy, it continues. So where do you choose to start? Well, if we start with the material in the interstellar medium, that's where the first stars will form from. We form those stars. We form things like emission nebulae here as those stars are beginning to form. Those stars go through their lives. They evolve. They change as we've looked at over the last couple of days. Eventually, those most massive of them explode in a supernova explosion. Right? Most of the other ones don't matter. What our sun does in its core really doesn't matter for changing the interstellar medium. It's not going to send a lot of material back out there. It's going to send its outer layers out. Yeah, They're all hydrogen and helium, so it's not going to change a whole lot. So the supernovae, that's where all of the energy is. 
That's where all of the heavy elements are formed. So these stars form, they explode, they send their heavy elements back out into space, which then mix with the material in the interstellar medium to form the next generation of stars, which go through their lives, which some of those will go supernova and send more elements out. Essentially what would have happened, the very earliest stars that formed would have been hydrogen and helium only. So if you lived on a planet that orbited one of these very first generation of stars, there wouldn't be things like silicon, oxygen, carbon. So you wouldn't expect any kind of life. Everything would be just hydrogen and helium. That's all there was. Until those first few stars began to explode, as you got several cycles of this, you would slowly build up the concentration of heavier elements. It's still not very intense today. It's still less than 1% of the atoms in the universe. But enough that we can actually enrich this cloud significantly that we can form a star like the sun several four, three and a half to four billion years after the universe, uh, form a galaxy and form the sun about 10 billion years after the universe formed and have it with enough elements, enough iron, carbon, oxygen for us to be able to be here and study it. So it's a continuing process and each cycle enriches that material more and more and sends more, significantly more heavy elements back out into the interstellar medium to form new stars and the process will continue. So that's really all I wanted to do on the cycle just to give you a little bit of idea that it's not just a one time through. We kind of went through it in order. We started with interstellar medium in chapter 11 and star formation and then in this chapter we did stellar evolution and heavy elements. But then it cycles all back. It continues, continues onward. Yes, sir? Have we been able to observe long enough to see probably not a whole star evolve and form, but at least make significant progress? No. Nope. Too long of a time. It takes even the most massive stars will take, you know, at least tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. So the amount of time we've been looking, even with a telescope, is a couple hundred years. So not not even close yet. We got a long, long time. Come back in, you know, 50, 100,000 years. Then maybe we'll get to the point where some of the stars that are in the process of forming now will actually be able to see them as stars. For something like the sun, forget it. You got billions of years to wait for any changes. All right, well let me go through my summary here and just kind of review everything. Not a bad review with the exam coming up on Monday. Uh, hydrogen, the sun right now is burning hydrogen. Any main sequence star is burning hydrogen in its core. It leaves the main sequence once it uses that up. The core becomes inert and contracts down, gets smaller and smaller. The outer layers expand and cool off. That's when the sun will become a red giant. So the core contracts down, compresses, heats up more and more, and hydrogen burns around the core, but there is no hydrogen in the core. Even though it's hot, it's all helium. So there's no energy source in the core anymore, and the outer atmosphere will expand. Eventually, that temperature of that core will get hot enough that helium will be able to fuse. You'll go from 15 million degrees to 100 million degrees. You'll get a high enough temperature that helium will begin to fuse in, in the core and that's what we call the helium flash. All of a sudden that helium burning starts very, very rapidly and burns throughout the star very quickly. As it goes through that, once it settles down, it will expand again into a red giant. The core will collapse again. Now it's got a carbon core and that will start to collapse. Again, 
the outer layers expand outward. Eventually they get so big, remember, they're going to incorporate Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. It's going to, the Sun is going to become gigantic compared to what it is today. Eventually those will become unstable and they'll be pushed off into space to become parts of other stars in the future. And they're leaving a white dwarf behind at the center which will gradually cool off to a black dwarf. A white dwarf just sits there, nothing much is going to happen to it unless it happens to have a companion. So if it's all by itself, absolutely nothing will happen. Absolutely nothing will happen with it. So our sun will just sit there once it becomes a white dwarf. All it's going to do is cool off. In the case of a, with a companion that's close enough, you can transfer material to the white dwarf from that companion star and you can get a nova, a burst of energy when you get enough hydrogen built up on the surface of that white dwarf that it begins to burn. So you get enough hydrogen on there, it will actually begin to burn. More massive stars, we can actually fuse the carbon so our sun will not be able to fuse that carbon into anything else. It's done. But a more massive star will actually be able to fuse carbon into oxygen and then into neon, getting heavier and heavier elements. If you've got a massive enough star, you get up to iron, element number 26. Once you get there, you're done. You've only got a matter of a day, two hours. Once it builds up that iron in its core, it's going to explode. Might take it tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years to get there, but once it actually starts forming iron, the core collapses, becomes unstable. Actually, as I said, it implodes. Everything collapses downward, bounces and expands and rips the, rips the star apart. So it actually tears the star apart. And that's what we call the type 2 supernova. Type 2 supernova is the end of the life of a massive star. A type 1 supernova is the process very similar to what we just talked about with the nova star. Mass is, material is falling from a companion star on a white dwarf star. But a white dwarf star has a limiting mass. A white dwarf has 1.4, whoops, I said 1.4 and I write 1.5. 1.4 solar masses. That's how much it can hold. Anything beyond that and it will collapse. So if it's very close to that, our sun will be less than one solar mass. It's never going to collect enough material to get to 1.4. A star that might end up with the sol with a white dwarf that's 1.3, 1.35, 1.38, you're getting real close to that limit, but it can still hold it. It can still, the pressure of the electrons can still hold up that star. Get a little bit too much material transferred and all of a sudden that star collapses and it's essentially an explosion. The carbon burning begins but it explodes and it doesn't just happen in the core, it happens throughout the star and rips the star apart. And that's what we call a type 1 supernova. The heavy elements, everything we find here, uh, the only place they're formed and the only way they can get back out into the interstellar medium is through supernovae. So only place we're going to form certainly anything heavier than iron, copper, zinc, gold, lead, mercury, all of that. Only place we can possibly form any of those is in a supernova explosion. There's no way we can get energy for them in a star itself. 
So everything heavier there is found in a supernova. And actually most of the material, even the lower ones, things like oxygen and neon, all come from supernovae as well. That's when they're expelled back out. Our sun's going to form a core of carbon and oxygen, but it's going to be locked up in that white dwarf. When it pushes off its outer layers, all they are is hydrogen and helium. Little traces of other things, but it's not going to it's not going to recycle all of that carbon back out into the universe. Most of it's going to stay locked up. It's only that supernova explosion that really is ripping the star apart that is putting those heavy elements back into, the, into, into circulation. We looked at how we could understand stellar evolution as we looked. You know, I can't, we can't watch an individual star. We can't watch it go through its life. No matter how much we want to wait and wait and wait, in one lifetime or ten or a hundred, it's just not going to happen. But we can look at star clusters of different ages and see all the different stages of a, star, of a star's life. So much as if you want to understand you know, some alien coming who wants to understand you know, how a human evolves and doesn't want to sit there and wait for you know, 50 or 100 years, could look at all the stages. You can look at the baby, the toddler, the teenager, the adult, the older person. You, know, you can look at all the different stages and try to put together, well, here's how a human evolves. Here's how they change from an infant up into an adult and up until death. So you could get some ideas of that without having to sit there and watch a single person go through their lives. You wouldn't have to wait 70, 80 years, whatever it would be, for a single person to go through their life. You can look at all the different, a bunch of different people and get a good idea. That's really what we do with the stars. Questions on 12? All right, then I am going to I am going to go ahead and get started on 13, which will not be on the exam, but we'll go ahead and get started on that so we're ready for for next week. Let's see what do we got? Okay. Um, chapter 13 is neutron stars and black holes. So a white dwarf is one of the things that can be left over at the end of a star's life. There are two other options. The other one is a neutron star, which we'll start talking about today. And the last is a black hole, which we probably won't get to till Wednesday. Wednesday and Friday of next week we'll actually get to talk about those a little bit more. So these are the three possible things that can be left over. No matter what you have, what, depending on what the mass of the star is, it's going to leave one of these behind. The vast majority of the stars will leave a white dwarf behind. A handful will leave neutron stars and an even smaller handful will leave black holes. Uh, there's a lot more black holes that we'll see when we start talking about galaxies. We'll see that there's even bigger black holes. But in terms of the end life of a star, there aren't very many that actually become black holes. So here's an example of a supernova remnant. Showed you a part of one today. Our second picture of the day, from the one from yesterday, was actually part of a supernova remnant. This is what we see when a star has exploded. Now this is long after, and it's color-coded here, I believe. This may actually be an x-ray image. I'd have to double check, so it's probably a false, it's a false color image for sure, looking at all the different intensities. But somewhere at the center here, was there is, would be the remnant, if there is a remnant, of the star that exploded. These are all the outer layers that are expanding out into space. So the supernova explosion is the only thing that can form one of these two. 
So a normal star like the Sun is going to form a white dwarf. Anything less massive and even some of many of the more massive stars are all going to form white dwarfs. The only way to get these is in those most massive stars that become unstable and explode and tear themselves apart. And that's just an example of what we'd see later. That's not the supernova explosion itself. That's actually just the remnant that's left over that you see hundreds or thousands of years later. So what we're going to look at are talk about neutron stars. Neutron stars have some interesting properties that we'll look at and they were actually discovered directly not as a neutron star but as what we call a pulsar. A star that actually pulses. Gives you pulses of radiation it, uh, several times a second typically. It gives you a burst of radiation. So it was an interesting star. That's how we actually first discovered these in, uh, from radio observations. We'll look at things, again today we'll see how far we get through here, but neutron star binaries, what if we have two neutron stars orbiting each other? They can actually eventually coalesce together and give off a big burst of gamma rays. So there are some things that we can do as you, as you combine these stars or as material transfers from a neutron, regular star to a neutron star, much as it did with a white dwarf. You can do a similar thing here but actually get bursts of gamma rays, much higher energy radiation. Then what we'll look at next week, we'll talk about black holes, which will involve us going to go through a little bit on Einstein's relativity, looking at special relativity and general relativity. And then what, was it, what would it be like traveling near a black hole? Fun, right? Wouldn't be that bad. And if the sun turns into a black hole right now, it's going to get dark, going to get cold, but nothing else much will happen. Right? Other than that our atmosphere will freeze to the ground and we'll all be dead, but still the Earth won't care. The Earth will happily orbit around the Sun as if it were a black hole of the same mass as anything else would. Might affect us a little bit, but you know. And what is the observational evidence? You know, how can we actually detect that there is a black hole out there? Alright, so let's go ahead and get started looking at neutron stars and how they form. We had two different types of supernovae. If you recall, we had type 1. A type 1 supernova nova was the white dwarf that all of a sudden had nuclear reactions going out throughout its entire body. All at once it started burning and it ripped itself apart. A type 1 supernova doesn't leave much of anything behind. It rips that entire thing apart and it's gone. So there's not going to be anything left behind in a type 1 supernova. In a type 2 supernova, the core can survive. If you recall that was imploding so all the material was going down. It reached some kind of limit, right? Things collapse in. Eventually the density gets high enough that it stops and it bounces back outward. But that core can remain behind. So you have the core left behind, extremely dense, denser than anything we can possibly imagine. What you've now done, a white dwarf star pushed all of the material, all of the space between the atoms, out, got rid of all the space between the atoms and you compress the sun down to something the size of the earth. A neutron star compresses out all the space within the atom. You squeeze those electrons into the nucleus. Electrons can combine with a proton and give you a neutron. Meaning that you have essentially a gigantic ball of neutrons. There's no space, no space left between them at all. You have actually the particles themselves are touching each other. You just have neutron upon neutron. So you essentially have a gigantic 
atomic nucleus with all of the particles, all of the neutrons are just touching each other, just pushing against each other. Imagine that going out for miles and miles and miles. That would be how dense everything is. There's no space. Right now you have atomic nucleus there and you've got all this space around it and that's not even to scale. Be much larger than that to scale. You'd have a little tiny atomic nucleus and you've got an electron around it. If you squish out all that space by pushing that electron into the nucleus, all of a sudden you're compressing things to incredible densities. And this white dwarf was the size of the Earth. So this is Earth sized. This is more city sized. That's how much empty space there is within each atom. You can take something that's already extremely dense and the size of the Earth, crush all the remaining space possible out of it, and press it down to something maybe six miles across. Incredibly tiny. And here's a little schematic of one. Um, there's you know, New York, Manhattan, etc. There with a neutron star to scale. So we've taken this. This would be calculated for something that had the whole mass of the sun and all that material squishing out every little bit of space that's possible to it gets it down to about 10 kilometers, about 6 miles in size. So extremely dense, denser than you could ever imagine. It is a solid surface. It's going to be incredibly hot. Even if it cooled off you wouldn't want to land on it because the gravity would be too so strong that you'd be crushed immediately. That's how intense the gravitational force would be. If you've ever seen, they do the calculations, you know, you'd weigh so much on the moon, you'd weigh so much on Jupiter, if you could land on them. If you could do this, you would weigh so much that it would actually, you know, trying to stand on it would literally crush you flat. You'd be crushed flat into the neutron star itself. So that's how much material is there. So incredibly dense teaspoons of matter will weigh billions upon billions of tons. You know, little teaspoon. Fill that with a little bit of neutron star material and you have billions of tons of weight. That's how much material, how much compressed the material is. And really gives you an idea of how much empty space there is. We looked at how much empty space there was in the solar system. It's also within the atoms how much empty space there is. So this is just to give you sort of a concept here, give you an idea of how small these neutron stars actually are. Makes them very, very difficult to detect. Neutron star went up to, or white dwarf went up to about 1.4. Try again. This can go up to about three solar masses. A neutron star can go up to about three times the mass of the sun. So you can have a lot of material. Crush the sun down that far, it's perfectly stable. However, if you keep doing it, if you get over this limit, which is approximate, that's not something that's really exactly known just because we don't completely understand the particles at that kind of pressures and densities, but it's probably around, three, it's calculated to be around three solar masses. If you get too much material, it'll eventually collapse. If you collapse a neutron star, then you form a black hole, so that is anything with three plus solar masses. Now recall, that doesn't mean how massive the star was. That's how much is left over in the core. So if you had a 10 solar mass star or a 20 solar mass star that went supernova and exploded off and gave out 18 solar masses, threw 18 solar masses out into space, you're going to be able to form a nice neutron star core left over. 
If you had a 30 solar mass star that sent 25 solar masses back out into space, then you're in trouble because you've got five solar masses left over and the neutrons just can't hold up against each other. There's too many neutrons there and the neutrons crush in on themselves and it compacts down even smaller until it becomes a black hole. All right. What do we know about neutron stars? Well, they're very massive, heavy. They've got a big, they're very small size. But they also have a couple of other things. When you condense material down, a couple of things happen. One is the rotation. As you bring material in, we saw this when we formed the solar system, right? We had this big cloud that was rotating very slowly. As it condensed down, you ended up with things like the sun rotating once a month and the planets orbiting around the sun. That's all the same rotation. As you condense things down, they spin faster and faster. Now you've taken something like the sun and condensed it down even further. That core is going to spin extremely rapidly. In fact, several times a second. Three, four, 50, 100 times a second. So you've got this thing that's miles across spinning several times a second, extremely fast. So it's going to do that. Now if you've seen that, right, you watch the ice skating, you see the same kind of thing. If you have an ice skater out there spinning on the ice, put your arms out, you spin slower. As the ice skater drags their arms in, they'll start to spin faster and faster. That's the exact same thing that is happening here. They're bringing all their mass in close to their body. They're going to spin faster. The same thing happens to a star. And these stars are now going to be spinning with a period of a fraction of a second. So it's taking them less than a second to, to spin around on their axis once. You know, the Earth takes a day. The Sun takes about a month. Uh, Jupiter was going fast and Jupiter was spinning about once uh, every nine, uh, nine, almost ten hours. These things are spinning extremely fast and for most material, if it wasn't so dense, these things would rip themselves apart. The other thing that happens is the magnetic field of the star. The magnetic field lines get concentrated as you shrink it down as well. The magnetic field lines get concentrated and closer and closer together and it becomes incredibly strong. So they're now very compact objects. Uh, masses greater than that of the sun typically. Extremely fast rotation and very, very strong magnetic fields. You know, millions of times stronger than what we have on the sun or the earth. You know, we have reasonably strong magnetic fields. These are many, many times greater. So that's going to give us some specific properties of them that are going to help us to detect them. Because otherwise, this object that is, the si that is only six miles across, if you have an object that's that small and it's light years away, doesn't matter how hot it is, it's going to be invisible to you. Because it's not going to be putting off enough light. It's so tiny. It might be putting off a lot of light in each square meter, but you could count the number of square meters on its surface. There's not going to be enough light to be able to see it. So this combination actually helps us to be able to detect these objects that would really be otherwise invisible. And it wasn't until, what is it, not, not quite 50 years ago that we actually were able to detect the first neutron star. You know, 50 years ago they were theoretical, but we didn't really know anything, anything about them. So here's the first one discovered 1967 uh, by Jocelyn Bell, who was a graduate student in Cambridge 
And she was working on a thesis in radio astronomy, which was, again, 1960s radio astronomy was still, still relatively new within the last, really got started in the 50s. So we were studying more and more, and she was studying these objects, trying to uh, look at some. Look at these objects and found some that emitted very regular pulses. And this is an example of what she'd see, that you'd look at this and the intensity would pop up, you know, every second, three quarters of a second or so, depending on the period, exact period of this one, you'd see a little blip, little increase in the amount of energy coming from this star. So what was going on here? What is going to give us this kind of signal? Well, the first thing is to get something that regular, that's not an astronomical signal, you would think. Typically, there's just no way to, for a star to give you a pulse with this very small period. When you see things that are varying coherently at that short of a period, it means they have to be incredibly tiny. Now, I've already explained neutron stars to you so you can see where it's going, perhaps. But early on, they didn't know what this was, so trying to look for it, was it some terrestrial signal? Were they picking up some interference on Earth that would account for it? Was it some kind of extraterrestrial signal? Now, was it an alien signal? Were we actually detecting a signal or a sign of alien life? And in fact, the first ones were named uh, LGM1, little green men. So as a possibility, because that was seriously considered that it could be, in order to get a coherent signal pulsing like that, the only thing we could really think of, one of the early things we could think of, was that it was an extraterrestrial signal. Once we eliminated you know, Earth-based sources, you could you know, do sig to, re to remove those, you found out that, yes, it was out in space. And it was a very regular signal. So was it some signal from an alien civilization? It turns out it wasn't. What it is is actually a neutron star. A neutron star itself is very hard to see. But because of its strong magnetic field and its rapid rotation, they can emit bursts of energy that we can detect. And because it spins so fast, we get one every single time it bursts as it's spinning, as it spins around and points at us each time, we get a little burst of radiation from it. So that allowed us really the discovery of pulsars. First of all, the pulsars were discovered, but then after some study we learned that they were actually neutron stars. So we'd actually detected not only white dwarfs, but now we knew of neutron stars that we could, that we could study. And this gave us a way to study them that we could not before. All right, so why does it flash on and off? Why do we have a neutron star getting bright and then faint again? Well, what we call, that's what we call the lighthouse effect. Essentially, the neutron star is spinning. And you look at the lighthouse beacon here, the little inset image. As the lighthouse, as the beam comes around, right, you don't see anything, you don't see anything. All of a sudden, it points right at you and you're blinded for an instant, and then it goes away. And then as it comes around again, you get another burst of light and another burst of light as it spins around. So as that light comes around and shines, you'll actually get to see a burst of it. And that's a good similarity to a pulsar. Here is the neutron star rotating very, very quickly. These, are the, these, these curved lines are the magnetic field wrapped around the star. If you recall, we've talked about those with the aurora and things. The, the magnetic field lines are very good at blocking charged particles from going across. So instead of charged particles leaving the neutron star as it spins in all directions, 
they're funneled to only be able to leave along the poles. That's where the magnetic field lines come into the star itself and that's kind of the weak spot. That's where they can actually beam out. You can actually send particles out from the neutron star there. You try to send them out here, they won't go across all these magnetic field lines to get there. They'll be turned inward until they get close to the poles, then they're beamed outward. So we can actually see them. As this rotates, if it's rotating, the rotation axis is here straight up and down. So as it spins around, that beam will point in different directions in space. If we happen to be in the, in the path of one of those beams, then we'll get that pulse that we saw in the previous slide. We'll get pulses. Every time that beam crashes around us, boom, we get a pulse, we get a pulse. Every single time it passes in front of us, we will get another pulse from this. If that neutron star is rotating three times a second, one, two, you're getting it every single time it passes by you, you might get three bursts or four bursts every single second. That's what we're seeing here. In fact, some of the strongest pulsars and the youngest ones not only emit this in radio waves, which is how they were first detected, but there's some very young pulsars that still do this in visible light. They can emit enough visible light that they'll flash on and off in visible light. So you can watch them and I'll show you an image here coming up where it's on and then it's off. And all it is is a matter of whether that beam happens to be pointing towards us at that instant or pointing away from us someplace. The difficulty if it, with detecting the pulsars like this is that you have to be in the right location. If you're you know, looking at the, at the pulsar this way and this is rotating in a sort of a cone shape around, it's never going to point at you. So unless you're in the right direction to actually be able to see that pulse, it's going to be invisible. And we're never going to see that, that specific neutron star blink on and off as a pulsar. So, and the other thing is, two things, that's one, the other thing is that the neutron stars will slow down over time. They're spinning really, really fast when they're formed. They're slowly, as they're rating away energy, they're going to slow down. So instead of rotating four times a second, it goes to three, to two, to one, to once every two seconds. It's going to go slower and slower and they're going to be emitting less and less energy. So eventually, the neutron stars, as they cool off, will dissipate. We talked about white dwarfs going to black dwarfs and that would never happen in the life of the universe. Well, this will. This actually slows down much quicker and there are neutron stars that will have already slowed down to the point where we would not be able to detect them as pulsars anymore. They would have weakened enough. So unless we're in the right path and unless the neutron star is young enough, we're not going to be able to see it as a pulsar. So we're seeing, the pulsars we're seeing are the youngest ones that happen to be pointing in the right direction. Anything pointing in the wrong direction, anything much older, is not something we're going to be able to see. Again, I kinda, I've kind of mentioned these are the two I just mentioned. Uh, pulsars radiate away their energy very quickly. We're talking instead of billions of years or trillions of years as we talked about with some of the stars to cool off, here it can be a few tens of millions of years. Again, astronomically speaking, that's a very short period of time. If a pulsar, any pulsar that didn't form within the last few million years is not going to be visible. That neutron star is going to be pretty much impossible to detect. Not completely, we've got some and I can show you a picture of one here in a minute that we've actually been able to get that's not a pulsar or that may not be happening but we can actually detect an individual neutron star. But once they cool off enough they're just not emitting enough energy 
And if they're not pulsing in our direction, we're not going to be able to see them. And there could be lots and lots of them out there, but very, very difficult for us to see. So as they weaken, it makes them much harder to see, which will happen in a few million years. The other thing is that we won't be able to see them if their jets don't point towards us. That jet doesn't point towards Earth at some point in that circle that it's making, we're never going to see it as a pulsar. Could we detect it still as a neutron star? Perhaps, but it's very hard. Again, those things are tiny. Those things are only miles across. And even though they might be very, very hot, they're not emitting a lot of total amount of energy. They're going to be extremely faint. And you'd have to know where to point. If you just want to find a random one out there, you have to be pointing at the right spot in the sky to be able to find it. Some of the advanced telescopes like Hubble would be able to pick one out. But you'd have to know where to look. So if you don't have any specific reason to look for this, this direction for an object, it's going to be quite hard to find. And let's see, here is one of them. This is the Crab Nebula. I showed you this uh, last, last time. Crab Nebula was a supernova explosion, uh, type 2, a massive star exploding that occurred. We saw it here on Earth in 1054, so almost a thousand years ago now. After that thousand years, material has expanded out into space to this extent. Now if we zoom in and look at the center, we can actually find the pulsar here. So we actually can detect a pulsar. We can detect its radio emission. But this is actually a very young, it's only a thousand years old, right? They can last millions of years. So this is an extremely young for a pulsar. And it happens to be, here's two images of it. There's the on stage and the off stage. Here's one, two, three stars that are visible off in the distance. There's the pulsar on. When that beam of visible light, in this case, is pointing towards us, where'd it go? It's still there. It's still got to be there, but we can't see it. It's not emitting enough energy when that beam isn't pointing towards us that we can't see it. So there we can see it. There we can't. Again, it's still there. Just unless that beam is pointing towards us, even this relatively recent one would be extremely difficult to detect. But they will, in this case, they will flash on and off invisible light. If you take the, the picture at the right instant, you can get it on. If you take it other times, most of the time, it'll actually be in the off position. Just meaning that beam is either pointing at you or it's pointing some other direction and you cannot see it. So that's one example. That's a supernova remnant that happened relatively recently that does have a pulsar inside it. Now they emit radio, they can emit visible light, they can actually, it's so young, it actually emits x-rays and gamma rays. So there's actually another pulsar here off in the distance behind that happened to be very close to the crab pulsar. So that's the pulsar from the crab nebula. This is a little bit further one. And out here, as we look at this image in a fraction, a quarter of a second, we see pulses in gamma rays in this time. Instead of looking at visible light or x-rays, these ones are actually young enough that this the Jaminga pulsar is actually emitting, pulsing in x-rays. So it's giving bursts of x-rays as it comes out. Very faint here. You can barely can't see anything. That beam is not pointing towards you. There's the beam pointing towards you. Not quite pointing towards you, pointing towards you. So as that beam flips around, we can get a very intense emission of gamma rays in this case. The younger, the very young pulsars, are going to emit all across the electromagnetic spectrum. They're going to emit gamma rays, x-rays, visible light, everything down through radio waves. As they cool off, you lose the higher energy first. 
So they're going to lose their ability to emit lots of gamma rays first. So those will start to die down. So when we see gamma rays coming from one of these, it's a very, very young pulsar. As we go on, gamma rays, we go down to x-rays, eventually the pulses will still pulse invisible light, but not in the higher energies. Finally, we detect them in radio waves. So radio waves will last the longest, and that's likely why they were first detected there, because there's so many more that will be emitting radio waves. Very few, only the few youngest, things that are thousands of years old, are ones that are going to be emitting the very highest energies. All right, what did I have? Here, let me do, I'm going to finish with this one here. This is, I said there was an isolated neutron star. Here's one all by itself that's been detected. Uh, it's very young, but it's not detected as a pulsar. So it's very young and extremely hot, which is one of the reasons we can see it. This is only about a million years old. So not too horribly old, but it's, again, it's still extremely hot. But it's cooling off very quickly. And here are just images from the Hubble Space Telescope that actually were able to pick it out. You can tell it's not a, not a high resolution detailed image because this thing is incredibly faint. But it was able to pick it out here in 1996 and then a couple positions later in 1999 it was actually able to detect this neutron star moving. Very high surface temperature, only about a million years old so it's cooled off to the extent that maybe we can't see the pulses, maybe they're just not pointing towards us. But this is a single individual neutron star but again it's something hard to see. Those other objects in there are all extremely faint. So you're not seeing a really bright object. You'd have to, by chance, happen to catch this in another image where you were maybe looking at something else and happen to realize that there was another object there. So it's not the kind of thing that you're really going to be able to just find. It requires specific searching and would be very difficult because, as you can see, it's not a very bright object. It doesn't just stand out there like the bursts do from the pulsar. So I am going to, I think, yep, because binaries will be next and I'll pick up here next time and we'll talk about neutron star binaries on Wednesday and then get into black holes. So we'll see what happens here. Otherwise, are there questions on that or for the exam or anything else before I let you break before lab? No, no, no. Alrighty. So we'll take our break and come back about 10 and get started on lab then.